Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today we're going to be reading from Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for, as, for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat, and as you do, if you have a Bible, whether it's on your phone or, or in your lap, an actual physical Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Hosea. Uh, we're going to first read in Hosea chapter 1, and then we'll get to chapter 3. Um, if you're new here to one Trailview or church in general, you might have just heard Pam read that and be like, what in the world did we just read? Um, we'll get there. Uh, hang on. Uh, there are some interesting, weird, complex, beautiful stories in the Bible, and the story of Hosea is one of them. So I want to encourage you, if you are new here, in your chair you would have found this Connect card. At some point in our worship gathering, if you wouldn't mind filling that out, we'd love to connect with you uh, in the weeks ahead as we move into the new year and share with you just a little bit of information about who we are as a church. We're a little over, a, almost a year and a half old church, um, and we'd love to share with you our story, hear your story, and, uh, and help care for you if there's any specific ways we can. And the prayer card's a great way for us to do that. If there's specific prayer requests you have, we'd love to, to have you also fill that card out. You can do a few things with it. You can do it digitally with the QR code. You can take this card and drop it in that black box in the back, or you can bring it to myself or Pastor Brandon um, at the end of our worship gathering. We'd love to connect with you, uh, share with you a little bit about who we are, um, and hear your story as well. Also, um, this Friday is Christmas Eve. And we're having a Christmas Eve candlelight worship gathering here. Um, and these cards in the back on that table are just little info cards. One, I want to encourage you to join us Christmas Eve. Uh, I don't know what your family's rhythms and traditions and things like that are around Christmas Eve. Um, I, would, uh, I would say if you don't typically have a rhythm of worshiping Jesus on Christmas Eve, it's a great thing to put in place in your family's rhythm um, to just kind of right before Christmas focus our attention on what it's actually all about. Jesus' birth, what we've been walking through. And so I would encourage you to join us on Christmas Eve, five o'clock here in this place. Um, and also you can grab some of these in the back and take them to your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends this week, um, and, and invite them to join us on Christmas Eve as well. Um, so join us then. Um, as we uh, dive into Hosea, let me ask you a question. Um, have you ever been working on a project, maybe building something or baking or doing something like that, and it's just not going well? Um, the project's not going well, whatever you're baking starts to look weird or funky. Uh, have you ever gotten to the point with that project and you're like, this is just too far gone? Like it's just, it's gone so far away from what I actually was intending that it's just like, is this even fixable? Like, is there even a point in this where it's like, if I did this or that, maybe we could save it or like make it work or turn it into something else? Um, I remember I was building a piece of furniture that uh, Rachel and I have and and I made a mistake on a part of it. It's this big buffet and hutch, and I made a mistake, and uh, and so the shelves on it were like 
that on the outside edges. They kind of slanted in, which is not a good shelf if you're curious. Um, <laughs> shelves should be flat and level. Um, they slanted in, and I was just like, that was so much wood just down the drain. <laughs> um, I don't even, and so I just kind of walked away from it and was like, oh, the bottom half of this thing is awesome. The top half, I'm going to have to start all the way over. And I just had no desire to really start all over on it. Thankfully, my dad stepped in and on his own was like, I can fix this for you. And he made it wonderful and beautiful and stronger and straight and level and all those things. And, uh, and so it was, it was a moment where I saw this thing I was working on and it was just like, it's too far gone. I'm going to walk away from it. Uh, and some people in life, we see things that are in disarray or brokenness and we see potential. Maybe you're, a, you're like the HGTV house hunter, like not house hunter, that's the one where they're all pretty, the like flipper house show person. And, and you drive by like houses in parts of our area or you see them on TV and you're like, that could be so awesome. And it's a dump. And you see the potential, you see where things have gone wildly wrong, but there's hope that it could be made new, that it's not too far gone. It's actually like the diamond in the rough kind of deal. And some of you, uh, you don't see the potential, but we see the brokenness. And in the midst of all of that, we're prone to see its current reality. We don't see the potential of it, but we see the current reality of it. That, that along with that potential comes a whole lot of unknowns. Whereas seeing potential, person has glass, completely full vision, not like half full, completely full vision, um, can be oftentimes unrealistic. The person who, uh, who in, in the inverse side of that, sees the current realities of it. Um, they don't typically carry the excitement about what potentially could be there because they see all the unknowns. They see the lots and lots of potential money. They see the hard work. They see the countless potential problems that may be at, 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 in the midst of this thing. That even if it was possible for whatever that is that's broken and messy to be made new, there's a ton of risk involved. And these two different perspectives, neither one of them is better than the other. Like, like the person who, who sees the potential of something that's broken, and the person who sees the, the risk of something that's broken, the, the potential brokenness and the, the, all of those things, neither one of them are, are bad or different or better than the other. They're different ways in which we are wired to see the world. My wife and I are totally different in this. We both see the world in different lenses in this regard. Neither one's better than the other, but oftentimes when we, when we look at something that's broken, that seems to have gotten so far off the rails, we respond in one of those two ways. In seeing the potential or seeing the just like uh, un, unknowns and the inability to imagine that being renewed. And, and like I said, neither one of these are great or, or, uh, or better than the other. Um, they're both real. One can see the potential reality of it, and one sees the current reality. Both are necessary. Both are necessary for something to actually come to life out of brokenness. You have to have vision for the potential and assessment of the reality for something to actually happen. As we've been walking through over the last, this is the fourth week, we've been walking through the story of redemption. We were, this is a series uh, on Advent where we're looking at the entire Old Testament in four weeks. 
If you've read the entire Old Testament, congratulations. You deserve an award. Uh, like, if you, if you know the entire story of the Old Testament, there's countless what seem like tangential storylines and all kinds of stuff happening, and it's like, what in the world's going on here, and how does that have to do with anything else that's happening in the story? But the reality is the entire Bible is one story. From Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation, it is one story, and it's the story of redemption. And so we've been telling this one story, this one story of redemption. And so we started in a garden, everything's great and peachy and wonderful, and we started in the shadow of a tree in that garden where man and woman ate of a piece of fruit under a tree that God told them, if you eat, you'll die. Entering into the world, sin, brokenness, and death. Because of their rebellion, disobedience to God's one command not to eat the tree. And interwoven in that moment was a promise. A promise of redemption. A promise that a baby would come from woman that would overcome the curse of sin and death. And as the story continues from Genesis chapter 3 throughout all of Genesis, you read and you get to see the story begin to narrow its focus. Like a funnel, it starts up here real wide. Some woman's going to have some baby, and it starts to get closer and closer and closer as the story continues. And as that funnel goes down, it begins to enter into a guy named Abraham. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. That couple, super old, not like kind of old, like actually really, really old, like Betty White about to be 100 old, like, like just old. And, uh, and, and God promised them they'd have a, a baby. In there, like Betty White, almost 100-year-old age, have a baby. Not physically possible. And they know that's not physically possible, but they trust the Lord. There's some deviation in that, <laughs> where they don't trust the Lord a little bit, kind of go about their own way. And God promises them that their child that they have would be the father of a great nation, whose children would outnumber the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. And that baby was Isaac. And Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, and Judah was one of those sons, and Joseph gets them all in a really roundabout way to Egypt. And in Egypt, we have another baby enter the story, Moses. When all the babies are being killed, this baby, Moses, is rescued and saved. And Moses grows up in the house of Pharaoh, kills an Egyptian slave master, runs away for 40 years. While he's away for 40 years, God calls him and says, hey, I'm going to use you. Yeah, you can't talk well. That's cool. I'll take care of it. I'm going to use you. You're going to go back to Egypt, and you're going to free all of my millions of now people from the Abraham family from slavery in Egypt. If you've seen the prince of Egypt or Moses, you kind of know the story. If not, that's it in three minutes. <laughs> and God rescues and saves his people freeing them from slavery in Egypt by the blood of a spotless lamb as Moses leads the people out of Egypt, wander around in the wilderness for about 40 years towards the promised land, the land God promised Abraham where this nation would be. And so they get to the promised land. Things are going what seems like, well, they got the promised land. They're where they're supposed to be. They got these people called judges. Judges are helping guide the people. They're telling them what to do, what not to do, helping like they're hearing from God and leading the people, but the people don't like that. They don't like God telling people what to do uh, for them. They want a king. And Brandon did a great job last week walking through this particular part of Israel's story, this same story to remind you of Genesis chapter 3, promise for a baby, now gets to a single nation, Israel, and they want a king. And God says specifically in that to Samuel when they beg for a king, hey Samuel, it's cool. 
give them a king. It's not going to go well. They're not rejecting you as a prophet. They're rejecting me as their king. They don't want God to be their king. They want to be like everybody else. They want a real a person as king. And so they get a king, and it doesn't go well. And then there's this one dude, Daniel or David, and it goes really well for a little while, and then really bad for a little while, and then it just kind of spirals downhill. And you have like a roller coaster of like good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, broken kingdom, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, for generations. And as the people of God um, are uh, people of God specifically, as the funnel continues to narrow down, telling this single story, the funnel continues to narrow down from Abraham which is kind of a small group of people. you got Abraham and Sarah, and then you got a couple million people, and then it's like, okay, one of these people is going to come from Judah, and not only Judah, but now the, the son of Judah, David, and this baby is going to come from King David, and so the circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and as the story continues, it seems like it just goes awry. Specifically because um, God's people have rejected him as their king. They've made a man their king. They've begun worshiping other gods and doing all kinds of horrendous evil. And God tells them now, and the story shifts from a king to using prophets to speak and lead his people. So today we're going to look at one of those specific prophets. And there's two kind of generations or genres of these prophets. There's, there's prophets, which to give you kind of a, a, a way to think of this, prophets are like the spokespersons for God to his people. They hear from God and they go and they tell the people what God said. It's not always, most of the time, great news. Just FYI. Some of those prophets show up early and they're like, hey, uh, warning, if you keep doing what you're doing, this is all going to end in destruction of the kingdom and captivity. They warn them that their sin is going to lead to destruction. Sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 3. And then they show them how it's going to end in destruction. And then there's some prophets on the back side of that. So you have warning prophets. You have, it happens, they get to, the kingdoms destroyed. They go into captivity in Babylon and Assyria and then the Persians. They're in captivity for almost 100 years as slaves in another kingdom, another nation. And you have prophets during that exile who are saying, hey, I know it's real bad right now, but hey, remember God made a promise that there'd come a king from the line of David and we start working our way back up that funnel all the way to Genesis chapter 3. That there'd be a king who would come, who would be God with us. That promised baby who would overcome the curse of sin and death, who would lead in righteousness the people of God. And so today we're going to tell the story of one of those prophets. And he's a prophet who lands on the front side of that. This is before the kingdom's destroyed. So it's a lot of warnings. Hey, this is going to happen because of your sin. And it's also a little bit of a weird story. Uh, God often asks the prophets to do odd things. He asks them to do odd things. Some of them it's like, hey, I want you to run around naked for a while. Some of them it's build a little city and lay there by it. Not joking about that. <laughs> Not even being facetious. That's actually true. Um, God asked them to do really weird things. And also asked them to say really hard things. Specifically because he's speaking to his people warnings to get their attention about how their sin is going to lead to their destruction. And so God uses these prophets to do that. And today we're going to specifically be telling the story of Hosea. The prophet Hosea. 
And Hosea is a little unique because God actually asked Hosea to do something that's life-changing for himself that also represents God and his people. That the story that we're going to look at with Hosea directly reflects the heart of God towards his people, towards you and I. And so the, the whole point and purpose and where we're headed today is this, this truth. Jesus is the promised baby. He is the redeemer of God's people. Jesus is the redeemer. That baby in a manger in Luke chapter 2 that comes after 400 years of silence and all that, that baby in a manger, Jesus, that we look at in all our nativity scenes is the redeemer. And what does it mean to be a redeemer? Well, to redeem something, you get a coupon, right? Go redeem a coupon. Kind of works. Um, not the coupon, that is an illustration, kind of works. Now, to redeem means to compensate for faults or bad aspects of something. It can also mean to gain or to regain possession of something that you once had in exchange for a payment. I'll say that one again. The word redeem means to regain, to take possession of something that you used to have, in exchange for a payment. And so the story of Hosea is a story of Hosea as a redeemer, painting a picture for us that God is a redeeming God, a God of redemption who sent Jesus to be our redeemer. And it implies a few things about Israel, which directly correlate to you and I. One, that there are faults, we call them sin, that need to be compensated for. There's sin that requires a payment. It also implies this, that we were once in God's possession, or at least we should be in God's possession, but we aren't anymore and need to be purchased back so that he now regains possession of us. But we'll get into that. Like I said, the story of Hosea is it's a prophet, and in that prophet, it's a story of redemption in of itself. But it's not just this isolated story of redemption. It's a story about a husband and a wife that's full of all kinds of sin and brokenness. Filled with all kinds of whoring, that's a word they're using, not me, but I'm using it because they do. Like cheating, adultery, all of that, filled with it. And in contrast to that, we see it as a story of faithful, never-ending, steadfast love. And it echoes a grander story. The story of Hosea echoes the greater story of redemption. So we're going to tell this story in three parts. If you're following along or taking notes, we're going to tell it in three parts. The first part is covenant, a particular kind of relationship. The second part is lost. And the third part is redeemed. So covenant, lost, redeemed. And let's start in Hosea chapter 1. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, it says this. This will be up on the screen if you want to follow along or if you want to turn there in your Bible. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So we went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and said, Conceive, and she conceived and bore him a son. See, again, like I said, God tells Hosea to do something that seems really odd, really weird. He says, Hosea, like, you're a single dude, and I want you to go take a wife. But not just any wife. I want you to go take a wife who's a prostitute. I want you to go take a wife who, whose life has been marked by cheating and adultery. 
want you to go woo her and, and make her your wife and have children with her. And so Hosea goes and he enters into a covenant with Gomer, his wife. He listens to the odd, shocking command of God, and he goes and he takes Gomer to be his wife. He goes and he takes an adulterous woman to be his wife. And this story echoes for us a little bit of the relationship of who God is and who we are. That as this story parallels the grander story of redemption, uh, Hosea represents God. And the people of God, humanity as a whole, Israel in specific, are represented by Gomer, the prostitute. And he specifically says, why? Because the land, meaning the people, commit great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Just like in, uh, in the earlier parts of the story where the people reject God as their king, they continue down this path of rejecting God. They cheat on Him. But God establishes a covenant with sinful man. That God in His righteousness enters into a covenant relationship. A specific kind of relationship with vows and conditions and promises with mankind. Intertwined in all of these promises, from the Genesis chapter 3 promise all the way through, is God's establishment of a covenant with mankind, specifically through Israel, to bring about a blessing to every nation. And God establishes that covenant. And he promises in that covenant to have eternal, faithful love for Gomer, for us, for Israel. And this echoes for us this reality, uh, that God uh, began a relationship with Israel in that, that we are made for relationship with God. That some have said it in this way, like our hearts have a God-sized hole. That even though you and I might, prior to faith in Jesus, have never had a covenant relationship with Him, God created you in the image of God for relationship with Him. That we have this God-sized void or hole in our life. We are created to be with God. Like when you think about this idea of soulmate, um, like well, let's step back and expound on that just a little bit more. Zoom out a little bit more. It's like, yes, every human soul has a place it belongs. That's not another human being, but it's with the creator of our souls. That our souls do have a place they belong, but it's with God. That we're created for covenant relationship with Him, even in our sin and brokenness. Uh, St. Augustine gets at the heart of this when he says our hearts are not at rest until they find rest in Him. That, that we are anxious and stressed and, and running around like chickens with our heads cut off, seeking satisfaction and joy in the world until we find that fulfillment in God. Because this story echoes and begins with God and us, Gomer and Hosea. That we're created for covenant relationship with God. That He wanted covenant relationship with God. Mankind. We're designed for it, we're created 
for it. But then this leads us to part two, loss. That yes, there's a story of Hosea in his obedient, faithful love to go love a woman who most would never desire to be the husband of. And he steps into and enters into a covenant relationship with her. He marries her, and they have multiple children. But that covenant seems to be lost. And if the covenant isn't lost, which it's not, it's faithful. She is lost. Gomer is lost. And when I say the word lost, I don't mean lost in the sense of like, she can't find her way. That's not what I mean by lost. What I mean by lost is is this idea that we no longer are where we belong. That we're not where we should be. Like a sheep. A sheep's not lost so long as it's with who? The shepherd. A whole flock of sheep can be lost when they're together. What makes a sheep not lost? The presence of the shepherd. So in the sense of this, what we're getting at here is that Hosea, faithful husband, Gomer, lost no longer where she belongs. What happens as the story progresses is Hosea marries Gomer. And Gomer comes and they are married and they have kids. And Hosea or Gomer returns to her life of prostitution. She leaves Hosea. And she returns to a life of prostitution. And she goes after her former lover's She willfully chooses to leave Hosea for a life of adultery. This is what unfolds in chapter 2 of the book of Hosea. That she rejects Hosea as a loving, faithful husband. She doesn't want him. And she believes the lies of her former life of adultery. And like for you and I, idols in adultery promise everything, and they say they don't cost you anything up front. Hey, come, yeah, indulge yourself. It won't, it won't cost you anything. But then the, the coin flips, and they begin to cost you everything and give you nothing. So Gomer leaves Hosea to go be a prostitute, to live a life of adultery. And along that journey, she begin, becomes enslaved by her lovers. That what once was this promise of joy and life and satisfaction has now become a place of oppression. That the the allurement of her former life draws her in and now takes her captive, a slave. And this echoes for us the grander story of redemption, that God has shown His people, mankind as a whole, Israel in specific, 
nothing but faithful, steadfast, merciful love. Yet Israel and mankind as a whole have said, we don't want your faithful love. We want the love of an adulterer. And in that found ourselves enslaved by our lovers. Oppressed in them. And in the story, God is unfolding for Israel, the nation, what's specifically going to happen. That if they don't repent, they're going to be overtaken and taken captive by the Assyrian army. And they're literally going to become slaves to the nation of the gods they've now chosen to worship instead of the one true God. And that's what happens. They go into the land of the Assyrians and the other kingdom into the Babylonians and they become slaves of the people of the gods that God told them not to worship. They become enslaved. This is the story of you and I also. That we, in, in, there may not be a moment where you look back on and are like, yeah, that's when I turn to, to reject God, but intertwined into our souls is a stiff arm towards God. A rejection of Him at the very heart of who we are because of sin. We are lost. And yes, that is a term used often by Christians to refer to people who, who don't have faith in Jesus, but specifically what I mean by that is we are lost because we are not where we belong. We're not with the shepherd. We're not with God. We're lost. And we're not lost because God has lost us. We're lost because we have wandered from Him. Hosea is, or Gomer is not lost and enslaved because, Gomer, because Hosea was not a faithful husband. Hosea is lost and enslaved in her sin because she willfully chose it over God, over her husband. It, it's worth pausing for just a few moments to ask this question. And we can ask it and start in the picture of Hosea and Gomer's marriage, and then we can zoom it out and ask it in reference to God and, and us. What are the reasons that people choose to cheat, to commit adultery? What are some of the reasons that people like Gomer or somebody you may know personally or even maybe redeemed or not yet by God's grace, your own story? What are the reasons that people choose to commit adultery? There's countless of them, I'm sure. Uh, there's a, uh, one that I think kind of maybe doesn't encompass all of them. But one of them can be wrapped up in this like idea that the grass is greener on the other side. That, that where I'm currently at isn't doing it for me. And if I go somewhere else, it will. Oftentimes, seeing the faults of the other person, seeing their failures, seeing their deficiencies and weaknesses seeing their offenses against you, or even seeing what they're not doing for you that you think you're entitled to or should have. Eyes pinned and turned on the other person in that marriage, Gomer towards Hosea going, 
Gomer saying, Hosea doesn't do what I want him to do. Hosea is not fulfilling me the way that I think he should fulfill me. The grass seems to be greener on the other side. And we can zoom this out and say the same thing about us. In, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, and for all mankind since, we've said the grass is greener on the other side without God. I'll be more satisfied, I'll be more joy-filled, I'll have more gladness in my soul if I choose sin instead of God. I choose my own pleasures, my own passions, my own desires instead of God's. Then I'll be satisfied. And we chase that for a while and it feels pretty good. For a while. Until we found ourselves enslaved to it. Yesterday I took um, my boys to the skate park near our house. And I'm just standing there. I mean, you know, like all good dads, whatever you take your kids to do, you got to do also. So I'm doing my best to relearn how to skateboard while they learn how to skateboard. And uh, there's this guy, I mean, he's probably nearish my age, 25, somewhere in that range, who comes up. And, uh, and I'm just, I don't even know, I was just standing there. I think I may have skateboarded back over by the park benches. And I'm standing there, and, uh, and he goes, hey, man, how long have you been skateboarding? I was like, that's not a very easy question to answer. <laughs> I was like, uh, I bought this six months ago, and I couldn't even say that I really knew how to skateboard when I was in high school, the last time I owned a skateboard. Um, and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And so we start talking and whatnot, and he's just super chatty. And so he comes over, and we're just standing there talking. We finally talk for an hour and a half. Um, and uh, we find out he's like, he said something about, um, yeah, man, it's really cool that you're letting your kids do extreme sports. My parents were both educators, and because they were educators, they wouldn't let me do extreme sports because, you know, extreme sports kids do bad stuff, and like proper athlete kids don't do bad stuff. At least that's what they're perception is. And, uh, and he's like, it's cool that you're like introducing your kids to all the things. I was like, yeah, we'll give it a shot and see how it goes. And I was like, where are your parents' teachers? And he's like, oh, Burleson. I went to Burleson High School. Find out we have this like really roundabout connection. A student when I was a youth pastor almost uh, probably eight years ago, he graduated high school, was friends with this kid, this now man. Um, and he um, wasn't a, uh, a good influence on that guy. Introduced him to drugs, um, this guy I'm meeting now, Jared's his name, and another former student, uh, introduced the student to drugs and for about a year and a half um, just went down a really, really hard, dark path using all kinds of drugs, partying, drinking, and all that stuff. And he's standing here going like, man, I feel so bad because you know what I did to that kid. I was like, man, like, thankfully the story wasn't done in 2012. But God has done some amazing things, even in spite of your bad influence in that season. So we began talking. He's telling me the last 10 years of his life. And uh, it's a crazy story. And the thing that interweaves itself through that entire thread is him working really hard and struggling really hard to get his life settled and straight. And he's searching in the next thing, and the next thing, and the next drug, and the next woman, and the next drug, and the next woman, and the next job, and then this, and that, and this, and that. The grass just seems to be greener on the other side every single place he finds himself. 
And so we had a great conversation and uh, shared the gospel with him and invited him to Christmas Eve here. And like, we'll, we'll see what happens with it. Got his number. Pray that the Lord works in his life and we see some fruit in that. Um, but it's just a really interesting, really common story of how we seem to always think that whatever the next thing is that we're not currently using or having will fill our soul. And to, to um, quote a 21st century poet, Justin Bieber, um, he says this in one of his songs, and about the same time, like 12 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, I remember driving through a Starbucks and hearing this line in this song. I don't even know why I was listening to Justin Bieber. Um, probably because the youth pastor trying to understand teenagers. Um, I don't know that it helped. But anyway, uh, there's a line in one of his songs that says this. Uh, Feel like I need a new girl to be bothered with, but the grass ain't always greener on the other side. It's greener where you water it. Which is just like a little sliver of truth in that moment. Not that like, oh, if I water my marriage, then I'll be joyful and glad in my marriage. It's like, no. Like he's getting at this truth that Gomer, in relationship with Hosea, says, you know what, life will be better if I didn't have a faithful husband, but had a whole lot of lovers. And so she gave up something good for something that led to oppression and slavery and pain and suffering. And you and I do the same thing to God. We look at God in His faithful love and we say, I know you've been faithful across all generations to rescue, to save, to work miracles and do beautiful things in people's lives of brokenness. But I'll choose countless lovers and false worship gods instead of you. And like we said earlier, it seems like, man, this story's getting about as bad as it could get. I mean, how many marriages end right now in the story? Where Gomer's like, I don't know what to do. She's gone. And I got these three kids that have weird names. Go read the story. <laughs> they do have weird names. God told them how to name his kids and they're weird names. And most marriages that have this happen end in that moment, but most marriages don't reflect the faithful steadfast, pursuing love of God. And so in the story, it doesn't end here, that God doesn't throw in the towel with his plan to rescue and redeem. He doesn't move on and go, okay, let's find a new Abraham, let's find a new David, let's move on the story, let's pick a different nation to bring about the Savior. Well, part three of this story is a story of redeeming. That in chapter 3, verse 1, we read it a little bit ago, I'll read it again. It goes like this. This is, remember, after Gomer has run out on Hosea, left, her, left him. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Just FYI, it's okay to love raisin cakes. That's a false god worship practice that he's alluding to here. So if you like fruitcake, it's a little weird, but that's not what he's saying here. Verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore 
or belong to any other man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in the fear of the Lord to, the, to his goodness in the latter days. What does God tell Hosea to do? Go get your wife. Hosea is innocent in this story. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's been faithful, thick and thin through every single bit of it. But God tells Hosea, go get your wife. And so he does. He goes, he finds his wife. And what does he have to do to get her back? He has to pay for his own wife, whom he's shown faithful, steadfast love for through all of her rebellion. It cost him 15 pieces of silver and a whole lot of grain that he has to go and buy his own wife back. And what does he do? He goes, and he does it. What could motivate somebody who's been through the tragedy that Hosea has to not just be willing to go and try to like make peace and forgive, but to pay from within themselves a debt that they don't owe on behalf of somebody who has hurt them so badly. Love. What would push Hosea to the point where he'd be willing to do this? Love. Though when it seems like it's over, move on. Hosea's steadfast, faithful love pursues Gomer. He goes and he pays the money and he gives the food to get his wife back. And, and this echoes the story of what God has his posture towards his people through all their sin and rebellion and adultery and rejection has been. Faithful, steadfast love that leads him to pursue even us in our adultery and sin when we've cheated and ran out on God. He pursues her. God pursued us. That God promised this nation, you're going to go into captivity because of your rebellion. There's consequences for your sin. But I will redeem you. I will come. I will pay for your faults. Remember? That's what redeeming means, to pay for the faults of someone else. I'll pay what's due for your mess up. And I will regain you back to where you belong. No longer lost, but mine with me. And God promised to do this. And there's some interesting phrases in the last 
uh, few verses of this that echo what actually happens and show us some things that are going to happen. That God tells Hosea, hey, when you go and buy her out of slavery, out of captivity to her lovers, I want you to take her. I don't want you guys to be alone. And she goes through a season, a moment, a time where she essentially is weaned off of her adultery. You're going to be alone. You're going to be celibate for a bit. To wean her off of her adultery, to re-enter back into the sacred covenant relationship of marriage with Gomer and Hosea, her husband. And there's some language in there that echoes this waiting In verse 4, the children shall dwell many days without a king or prince. It's hundreds of years from when this nation, Israel, is taken into captivity before they ever have a king again. Hundreds of years of waiting for their Redeemer. They're rescued and saved, brought out of, out of, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, brought back to Israel, yet still waiting for their king. And he says in verse 5, they'll return, seek the Lord their God, and David their king. David's been dead for a long time. So what in the world could Hosea be meaning when he says the people of Israel will return and seek after David their king? Remember our funnel? Woman has a baby, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah's brother, or Joseph's brother Judah, King David. In the story, we land in Bethlehem, the city of David, with Joseph and Mary going back for the census, having this promised baby of woman in the household of David, the king who they would return to. All of this pointing forward to Jesus. See, what Advent means is the arrival or the coming of the Redeemer. That the one God promised to come and redeem to purchase His people out of slavery to their sin, what they've done, to regain them for Himself, Jesus is the Advent, the arrival. Christmas is the arrival of that Redeemer. And His redeeming came motivated like Hosea, not by the beauty of Gomer. Like, Hosea's not like, man, I know she's got like all kinds of lovers and is a slave, but... (laughs) No. (laughs) He's not motivated by her attractiveness. He's motivated by His faithful love. In the same way, Jesus came to redeem God's people motivated by His faithful love in spite of their filth and brokenness and sin. That this story echoes the beautiful, faithful, steadfast, never-ending love of God. That no sin committed can outdo can be too far gone from His love. 
that even Gomer couldn't out-sin or reject or commit adultery. That would go so far that Hosea's like, no, that one too many times. In the same way, Jesus, our Redeemer, came motivated, motivated by love for His creation, us. Longing to regain us. He, just to put it simply, He wants you. Even in all of your mess up, He wants you. He wanted you so badly that He came to get you. And He didn't only come to get you, but He came to redeem. And redeem means to pay for. That it cost Jesus to redeem and rescue us. And it cost Him His own life. That to pay for the wrongs and faults we've done that in, enslave us, it required a payment. A payment of blood, of a sinless kind. And so God in flesh, Jesus came because of his love, motivated by his love, to pay for our sins so that he might redeem and bring us back to him for all of eternity. This, this story, this grand story that zooms in on Hosea and Gomer, that echoes out to God and all of mankind, is, it, it can be your story. That as I sat and talked with Jared yesterday, and hear all of the ways that he has sought after lovers, metaphorical and non-metaphorical, To fill this void and this longing for joy and life and satisfaction. Just like Jared, you and I are lost. We aren't where we belong with God and can find life, joy, gladness, and eternal life in God by simply realizing and acknowledging that He came to rescue and redeem you. By putting your faith and trust that Jesus came to redeem you by the blood he spilt on a cross, by his resurrection from the dead. So maybe today this is the day that you are redeemed, that you put your faith in Jesus today. Your sin is done away with, and eternal life is freely given to you. Not because you deserved it, but because of his love. A few other things that I think are helpful for us to consider. Oftentimes as Christians, we think, okay, I'm going to give up the world for God. And we act like we're engaged. Let me explain what I mean. That we think being a Christian is like being engaged. It's like, yeah, you're in a relationship with this man or woman, but you can't really do the things that married people get to do. And so it's like, well, God's called me to a life of celibacy when it comes to joy. I'll just try to be content while the world says, come eat at my table and find joy and happiness and satisfaction. And I'll just sit here, unhappy, living a 
celibate, joyless life until I have eternity. Oftentimes we think of the Christian life like that. Like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll be engaged to God. There's not really uh, a whole lot of joy to be had in that or satisfaction to be had in that. The world's where all that's fun, but I'll, uh, found, but I'll, I'll give up all that and I'll just kind of wait for heaven. And that's just not the story that the Bible paints a picture of. Christians who are joyless and unsatisfied until they go to heaven. The life that the Bible paints of the Christian is one that lives in a satisfying joy of God now. That live satisfied by the love of God now. That have true joy and peace now. And that comes by faith in Jesus and the way of Jesus. Living like Jesus. Think about it this way. Uh, like What we long for is an intimacy that will fulfill and satisfy our souls. How is intimacy cultivated? Relationship. Right? Do you have this like intimate bond with a stranger you never met before? No. Right? That'd be weird. <laughs> right? No, intimacy is cultivated and developed through relationship. It's available to us, a satisfying, soul-filling intimacy with God, given to us at the moment of salvation and available to be deepened and more satisfying for all of life as we live the way of Jesus. So I encourage you, if you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus, don't think of God as settling because He's not settling. He's satisfying. And that satisfaction for your soul comes as we develop deeper intimacy with Him by living the way of Jesus through relationship with Him. See, God has shown in the story of Hosea, in the grander story of the entire Bible, His faithful, steadfast love for mankind. A love that can't be outsinned. A love that can't be outdone by our rejection. A love that's available to all who come humbly in faith. And as we look into the manger at Christmas, we see the face of a Redeemer, God who came to purchase us because of His love back to Himself.